each Sunday, as we gather to worship God, we open our Bibles and we read from Scripture. Could you turn me down a little bit, please? We read from Scripture um, a portion of Scripture that leads us spiritually to give God the praise and the glory that is his due. And this morning, the beautiful thing is that the two people who will be leading us in worship as we read Scripture are going to be two women. And the, the Christmas season is a season that's very special for husbands who love their wives and for children who love their mothers. Because the theme of motherhood is at the center of, of the Christmas season. And it's a very dignified and a very glorious theme, despite what our world thinks today. Uh, we do love the picture that we see through Zechariah and Elizabeth and through Mary and Joseph of God condescending and lowering himself to reside in the womb of a woman to be given birth to. This is at the center of the Christmas story. And this morning I'd like you to turn with me to what immediately precedes the account of the birth of Jesus, which is the visit of Mary and Elizabeth. Um, Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We'll begin with verse 39 and read through uh, verse 56. Now, just a couple words of explanation. You remember last week we studied and found that um, Zechariah and Elizabeth had not had children. And while Zechariah was doing his work in the temple as a priest, he was told by the angel of God, that his wife would give birth. Well, of course, this was a miracle because both Zechariah and Elizabeth were beyond the years of being able to have children, and the entire time of their marriage they hadn't had children because they were uh, sterile. They were unable to have children, so it was a double miracle. They were too old, plus their whole lives they'd been unable to have children. And the angel of God appeared to Zechariah and said that his wife would be pregnant and that she would give birth to a son. And this son was John the Baptist who went before Jesus preparing the way of the Lord. And then, if you've read through the account of the Christmas story, you know that another angel appeared to Joseph and another one to Mary, telling them that Mary would be pregnant. And this was not a miracle because she had been sterile during her life and then was too old. This was a miracle with her because she was a virgin. She had never known intimacy with a man. And so God appeared to her through the angel and and told her that she would be pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit and would give birth to the Messiah and that he would save his people from their sins. Now, Mary and Elizabeth come together. Mary and Elizabeth are both pregnant miraculously. They come together, and this is the scene that we pop into now as we read. So let's read from the Word of God. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now at this time, so that Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a t- city of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And now it's Mary's turn. Mary said, verse 46, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, here we have the words of two women who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who prophesy. And today we are studying the prophecies of women. Now, we think of them as both being pregnant and both bearing special children, John the Baptist and Jesus, and this is true. But this morning we're not studying their children, but we're studying them and what they have to say about spiritual things. And it's very important for us to remember in a day when the principal reason we look forward to Christmas is so that we can have a huge, huge amount of materialism, a huge amount of food, a huge amount of candy, a huge amount of cookies, and a huge amount of football to realize that all this stuff that now surrounds Christmas is on the foundation of the birth of Jesus. Very, very hard today to remember that it's the birth of Jesus that is the occasion of the celebration we have as Christmas. Today it's arguably a federal offense to celebrate the birth of Jesus during Christmas time. You've got to be very careful how you do it, where you do it, when you do it, with what words you do it. Those who teach music at elementary schools have to pick the songs that are sung at the Christmas programs very carefully. And it would be better that they call them the holiday program than the Christmas program because Christmas has the word Christ in it. And so we have to separate ourselves from this huge apparatus of materialism. And we have to go back and look at the story. And here is the story we read. You have two pregnant women coming together in a town we don't know its name. They come together and they say things to each other under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They prophesy. So let's look at what's going on there and see what we have to learn about God. Because after all, God is the one who gave us life. And it is to God that we will soon return. So pick up with verse 39. At this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now, why did Mary go there? Well, it's likely Mary went there because she knew, as all Christians know, that to get together with other Christians and talk about what God's doing in their life will strengthen them and give them joy. 
And so Mary and Elizabeth got together, and they were both pregnant. And as we look at what's going on in their hearts through their lips, probably we have the biggest, the best picture that we'll ever have of Mary here, because uh, when two women get together and they're related and they're both pregnant, and it's a miracle for both of them, and then we have the Holy Spirit inspiring what they say. It's probably as accurate a view as you'll ever get of both of these women. They come together. They're celebrating their pregnancies. All right. They're in Elizabeth's home. And we read in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, about this time, Elizabeth would have been pregnant enough that her baby would have been quickened and the baby would have been kicking her and tumbling for quite a while. So this is not likely the first time that the baby leaped in her womb. But this leaping is not a natural leaping. This is not just one more kick. This is a special one. And how do we know that? Well, because it says that she was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 41, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Now, what is the meaning of this? Well, the meaning is that when this baby leaped, it wasn't natural because she, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the baby leaped for joy. Now, why would the baby leap for joy? It would leap for joy because it was in the presence of its Savior, Jesus. And so what we read here is that John the Baptist began to do the work that God sent him to do while he was still in the womb. John the Baptist, whether it was through his mother, we don't know how, but John the Baptist leaped for joy. Why? Well, not because of the presence of Mary and not because of his mother and not because it was a nice house, but rather because Jesus Christ had come into his home and he was the forerunner. He was the one that prepared the way of the Lord. And so he's leaping for joy. He's already in the womb starting to do what God sent him to do in his life. And when he was done doing what God sent him to do, what happened? Herod took his head off and he was done. <laughs> so his life was short. He did the work and then he was gone, right? And so we see here that this baby leaped in his womb, in her womb, and leaped in her womb for joy, verse 44. But let's go back to verse 42, because the only thing Elizabeth told us is not that the baby leaped for joy. Elizabeth cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now, it's very important this morning that we recognize that it is part of the nature of women to be jealous. Yeah, I am making a comment about women as opposed to men, and I'm making a negative comment about women. Women are, by nature, more jealous than men. And if you don't know this, read human resource magazines and books and take courses. Uh, learn what it is to supervise a group of women as opposed to a group of men. There are particular sins that men give themselves to, one of which is competitiveness 
that isn't so much based on jealousy as just sheer pride. Uh, women, however, are made jealous, I believe, and this isn't scriptural, but I believe it's because that's one of the protections of their children. That uh, women are supposed to be very zealous for the fruit of their womb. Well, regardless, look at Mary and Elizabeth and notice how Elizabeth is quite unselfish and unjealous when it comes to this uh, relative of hers. How many times have you seen women complimenting and stating the superiority of another woman's children to their own children? It doesn't happen very often, does it? Most women think their children are better than anybody else's children, right? And most women won't have you as a guest to their dining room table unless their house looks better than their friend's house, right? In other words... Everything comes down to showing themselves a better wife, a better mother, a better housekeeper, just better, better in general, better in specifics, better. But when Mary comes into Elizabeth's house, what Elizabeth does is she says, you're superior. You notice that? You're superior. Your child is superior. And so if we think of John the Baptist, when he had the tremendous ministry and everybody was coming to him out in the wilderness, and then Jesus shows up, the Bible tells us that John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so here, Elizabeth, the mother of this man, Elizabeth says the same thing when John the Baptist is just in her womb. Because she looks at Mary And Mary was in every way inferior to Elizabeth because Mary was younger. Elizabeth was an older woman by now. Mary would have been probably somewhere around 13 or 14 years of age. And Elizabeth was married to a man of the priestly descendancy from Aaron. They probably would have been much higher social status than Mary, better educated, More status in every way. But here's what Elizabeth says. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? In other words, what Elizabeth is saying is, um, I'm blessed with the the fruit in my womb, but I'm also blessed because my Lord has now come. The mother of my Lord is in my presence. And then she says in verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. This is probably an indication that Elizabeth is thinking about her husband and about the fact that her husband, when he was told that his wife would be pregnant and would give birth, that her husband, Zacharias, did not believe it. And so what Elizabeth is doing is Elizabeth is pointing to Mary and saying, you did believe My husband didn't believe. Now, she's thinking it, whether or not she's saying it, because remember, her husband was punished for his unbelief. What's interesting about this is that when Zacharias was told that his wife was going to get pregnant, there was precedent for it in Scripture, and everybody knew it. And the precedent was Sarah. Sarah was was sterile, was unable to have children, and in her her old age, uh, she did give birth to Isaac. And so Zechariah, in being given this wonderful news, but not believing it, 
He at least had precedent in the Bible for this, but what precedent is there for a virgin becoming pregnant? There's absolutely none. And yet we read that Mary believed. Mary believed what was told her. Blessed is she who believed, verse 45, that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And we look at Mary, and what a beautiful thing. Mary's told that she's going to be pregnant. By the Holy Spirit, she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Well, this child will be the product of the Holy Spirit. And then Mary says, what? I'm bond servant. I submit. I'll do it. And it's somewhat delicate to say this, but every Christmas we need to remember that this meant that Mary would have been a byword among the failures of the families in her village. Her own husband thought that she had committed adultery on him. Imagine what the catty neighbors had to say. Imagine what her parents thought. And so this is Mary. She says, I'm your bond servant, and she does it. And she believes. Now, when Elizabeth gets done speaking, we then have Mary speaking. And this is called the Magnificat. And it begins in verse 46 with Mary saying, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Have you ever been in a worship service and been asked to sing a song about, oh, how I love Jesus, and Jesus is precious, and your heart was sitting there thinking, my husband is a jerk, or my wife is an idiot, or my parents are obnoxious, and I wish I didn't have to sit with them, or some other sinful thought that you have, but you're singing, I love Jesus, Jesus is precious to me. Well, notice that when Mary begins to pray, she's not a hypocrite. What she's saying with her lips is my heart, my spirit. In other words, both my mind and my heart are united in praising God. My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Now, what is there that's obnoxious about Mary's simple statement at the beginning of the Magnificat? What is there that's obnoxious there? doesn't look like much in verse 46 and 47, right? It's not offensive. Is it offensive? What could you possibly take as offensive in that verse? Well, I'll tell you, it's not in verse 46. It's in verse 47, the offense. So now you want to make a guess? What's offensive in verse 47? All right, here we go. It's the word my. Now, what's offensive about the word my? Well, here's the offense. The offense is that the Christian church for centuries has had many, many of its leaders saying that Mary escaped original sin and the corruption of Adam that she was immaculately conceived. If Mary was sinless, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, then why did she call Jesus my Savior? She doesn't need a Savior. 
She was immaculately conceived. But Jesus, in her womb, being nurtured by her body, was her Savior. She needed a Savior. He was her Savior. She said, my Savior. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. What did Mary need to be saved from? Mary needed to be saved from the corruption that she inherited from Adam. She needed to be saved from her own sin. You say, well, where do we have record of Mary sinning? Well, I think I could show you a couple of places, but you might argue with me. Mary did sin. And when we call her blessed, all generations will call her blessed. It does her no dishonor to say that she was blessed despite her sin. And when we bless her for having faith, we remember what? That her faith is the gift of God. That it wasn't her own work that produced faith, because then she could boast and everybody could boast about her. So remember that Mary calls Jesus my Savior. And remember this specifically when you're around those who believe that Mary was immaculately conceived. No, Mary was a sinner born under the curse, under the fall, under her federal head Adam, and Mary had need of a Savior. Verse 48, For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave, The last 30, 50, 100 years has been a great project of convincing women that they're not bond slaves. Making women think much of the status that men have and of how they need to have the same status as men. And if you think about the most counter-cultural Example that you could possibly manufacture for feminism, it would be Mary. Where she's principally known because she got pregnant out of wedlock at the age of 13 or 14 and then called herself a bond slave and hung out for three months with another pregnant woman out in the country in the most despised part of the country, let's say Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas. She wasn't the woman that a feminist would try to get her to be, was she? A feminist would do what? Well, a feminist, number one, would teach her how to use birth control so that she didn't get pregnant out of wedlock. And then if she did get pregnant out of wedlock, feminists would take her to Planned Parenthood to kill her unborn child through abortion. Because a feminist would explain to her that pregnancy and childbearing is in opposition to her as a woman. And if she referred to herself as God's bond slave, a feminist would say to her, you have to stop thinking like that. You're worth more than simply being a mindless automaton, like a robot for God. You know, God doesn't need robots. God needs women of destiny. (laughs) 
you know, women who recognize their gifts and who seize the moment. And there's Mary. And what does Mary do? Mary receives her pregnancy, and then Mary goes visits another pregnant woman and calls herself a bond slave. Now, you're either proud and you reject Mary and therefore her, her son, Jesus, or you're humble, and that's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Those are the choices. And parents, you either are proud and demand that your daughters never allow themselves to become a Mary, or you're humble and you pray that God will make your daughters into a Mary. Those are the only two choices. In other words, as you read the account of Mary this morning, you have to decide whether or not Mary is the highest expression of femininity that the world has ever seen, or the lowest. Now, you know what you're supposed to say, right? Well, she's the highest. Well, all right, let's keep going. What does Mary have to say to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. She's referring to herself. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Now, what's Mary doing here? Is Mary taking pride in herself and who God has allowed her to be in the pregnancy that she's carrying? All generations will call me blessed. You know, is that what she's doing? It reminds me of my father-in-law shortly before he died being asked by somebody, you know, as you look back over your life, what, what, what are you proudest about? And he said, well, he said, you know, uh, some people have said I'm humble and I'm very proud about that. So here we're talking about Mary's humility and she says, all generations will call me blessed. Well, if you're blessed, that means you get something that you didn't earn. God gives you something because of his determination, his decision. And so even in this, Mary is not making much of herself. She's recognizing that God's going to speak about his glory and how he takes glory in the humble for the rest of history. And that's why she will be called blessed. And then in verse 49, she says, For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You don't get the slightest feeling of pride here from this woman. None. If you'd been there, you wouldn't have resented her. You would have loved her. Because she's saying that God is using her. And there's no pride there's no self-promotion. It all is giving glory to God. She says, holy is his name. Verse 50, and his mercy is upon generation after generation. Well, if you have a pregnant woman talking about generation after generation, you know that she's making reference to her family. That this is a thing, father to son to son, mother to daughter to daughter. And that what she's saying is that, that God is pleased to pass down through lines, through blood relationships, his blessings. 
We see that when God appeared to Abraham immediately, God promised that Abraham would have more descendants than there were sands in the sea, stars in the sky. And that God promised Abraham that he would work in Abraham's children. And then God had Abraham circumcise his children, mark their bodies physically as a sign of God being a God to a thousand generations. And so those of us who are Baptists would look at this and say, yeah, but in the New Testament, this isn't how things work. And I'd say, oh, yeah, it is. God has always promised to work from generation to generation. He knows that he has made us with unbelievably intense relationships to our parents and to our children. And God himself continues today. The promises of Scripture are from generation to generation. God does delight in giving us good gifts. And principal among those good gifts are the salvation of our children. So what? This is just a plain promise that our children will believe, that generation after generation will follow in the footsteps? Well, the answer is no, because look at how it ends. And his mercy, she says, is upon generation after generation toward those what? Who fear him. And what we want to say is that since God has made promises to be a God to our children, that simply by virtue of being our children, our children are saved. We baptize them, we dedicate them, we circumcise them, and we say, these are the children of Abraham. These are Christian children. These are children of the church. But what Mary says is what? She says, generation after generation toward those who fear him. And what we see in this little statement, those who fear him, is that among the children of believers have always been hypocrites and true believers. And the hypocrites are those who do not fear God. And so God is not making promises about our children, about generation after generation, that have no connection to the work of the Holy Spirit. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, are those who fear God. In other words, one very good indication of whether or not you have faith is that you fear God. Now, it's not a cringing fear. It's not a fear of a child that's grown up under a father who is uh, willy-nilly, back of the hand, angry at the drop of a hat, creating havoc in the home, abusing his children, abusing his wife. This is not the kind of fear of a father that we're talking about here when Mary gives this prophecy. We're talking about the fear of someone who is in a home where a father loves him and disciplines him. We're talking about the fear of every one of us here who knows God and who recognizes that at any time God can discipline us and that his discipline is love and that his discipline proves that he, God, loves us. All right. In other words, in the God we fear and love embrace. If you claim to know God, but you do not fear God, you don't know God. Because God is God. He's not a chilled out, candy distributing grandpa. God is God. And he is, his name is holy. 
And so, yes, we have the promise that he will be a God to our children after us, as many as fear him. And if there is no fear of God in your children's lives, don't you dare claim this promise and say that the lack of fear doesn't matter. One of the greatest privileges you have as a Christian parent is to teach your children to fear God. So many people today say, well, I'm going to let my children choose their own faith. I'm not going to pressure them. And I just think, like father, like son. The father doesn't fear God, the son won't fear God. And you say, well, the father may fear God, but he just has a different style of child rearing. I say, no, he has no style of child rearing. He just simply understands how to pander to his son as he himself has been pandered to. And so if your father didn't teach you to fear him, your father doesn't know God. Because there is no true fatherhood except the fatherhood that reflects the fatherhood of God. It's very, very important that our children grow up learning to fear their father and mother and to honor them. Because this teaches them from infancy what it is to fear God. And when, as we fear God, we recognize that God is holy and just and that there isn't hope for us because of our sin. And then we go to the cross. And at the cross, we meet the forgiveness of God and Jesus Christ. And then the fear and love embrace. And so Mary says, this is not a promise from generation to generation that's indiscriminate of the faith and the condition of the people. But rather, this is to those who fear him. Verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. Now, what kind of mighty deeds would this 13 or 14-year-old young woman, pregnant out of wedlock, visiting her relative also pregnant, what kind of mighty deeds with his strong arm do you think that she would take delight in at this time? And we see in the second half of verse 51 what it is that she takes delight in. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Again, in churches today across the country, God lifting up the humble is emphasized without emphasizing the fact that he brings down the proud. Now, can you understand in America today why it would be that we would not focus on what Mary focuses on, namely that God brings down the proud and brings down rulers? Can you imagine why Americans would not want to think about God bringing down the proud? What is America today? What is America today? You might be able to make the case that America is humble in a way that Britain isn't, and I'd agree with you. <laughs> I'd take pride in that. The United States is a nation that militarily has no equal. Culturally, no equal. Our culture is exported everywhere. 
United States citizen going overseas, no matter what country they're in, if they're treated unfairly, if they're imprisoned, the whole world knows about it. You think the whole world knows about it if somebody from Zambia gets imprisoned? Who gives a rip? America has power and authority, education, wealth, influence, that the world has never seen. And so every single American is powerful and rich and mighty. You say, not me, and I say, oh, yes, you. The poorest American is unbelievably wealthy and influential. An American that lives off WIC coupons and aid to dependent children is unbelievably influential and wealthy today. And so this is why in churches across the country today, nobody would focus on the fact that Mary delighted in God putting down the proud. That the principal thing that she was happy about was that his strong arm brings down rulers and brings down the proud. The reason we don't want to focus on this is that we're all proud. And we don't want to think about God bringing down the proud. If I can talk to you as a family for a second, you know that I'm Presbyterian. And when people study the various denominations in our country, what they find is that Baptists, as they get rich, turn into Presbyterians. And Presbyterians, as they get rich, turn into Episcopalians. And this is why always... Washington, D.C. has been filled with senators and congressmen and presidents who are Episcopalians. Because in religion, there is a pecking order. Now, those of you not from this country, you won't know this. But I'm telling you, Baptists, when they get proud, become Presbyterians. And Presbyterians, when they get really proud, turn into Episcopalians. I'm not saying all Episcopalians are proud. But I am telling you, every Presbyterian is. And we're particularly proud about the fact that we're not Baptists. It's true. Isn't it true? You're Baptist. Well, you're not Baptist. What are you? Mongrel. (laughs) Now, think about this in terms of what Mary is saying. What Mary is saying is that God is pleased to work in our lives In such a way that those who are humble that he lifts up and those who are proud he brings down. All right. Now, a wise person who knows that Mary speaks the truth, that God brings the proud down and lifts up the humble, a wise person would then do what? What would a wise person do? If God brings down the proud and lifts up the humble, what would a wise person do? A wise person would become a Baptist. That's what he said. You grew up Presbyterian. Be quiet. Don't have such good applications. Now, a wise person is going to cultivate humility. 
Now, how do we cultivate humility? If God brings down the proud and lifts up the humble, how do we cultivate humility? Well, I'm going to be sarcastic for a second. And I'm going to say I think the best way to do it would be to get a doctorate in philosophy. Okay, how about mathematics? To become a member of the United Auto Workers. To become a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer. To become a Presbyterian pastor. Now, I'm using all those as illustrations to ask you, how do you cultivate humility? I mean, doesn't it make sense if Mary, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesies that God's strong arm brings down the proud and lifts up the humble, that that's why he has a strong arm? Then it makes sense that we cultivate humility. How do we do that? One way to cultivate humility is to become an expert at naming and identifying and repenting for our sin. If we avoid facing our sin, if other people bring up our sins and we tell them to shut up, you're my wife and you're supposed to submit to me. We're not wise, are we? And let me tell you, husbands that don't listen to their wives when their wives point out their shortcomings are husbands that will be brought down by God. Do you understand this? As children, how do we cultivate humility? Well, one of the ways we do it is by submitting to our mothers and our fathers. When they discipline us and rebuke us, instead of having our pride come up out of us and say, you know, None of the other mothers treat their children like this. Why can't I pierce my belly button? I'm ten years old already. You know, children who are cultivating humility are children who are going to love the fact that their mother tells them what to do. Because it's good to be told what to do. Right? Right? My mother still tells me what to do. She does. How else do we cultivate humility? Well, we build a building that is not pretty. Conscious decision. We build it on the side of town that isn't pretty. Now, simply to build the building that isn't pretty, you can be proud about that. And it can be symbolic with no reality. You know, you can still have a bunch of people from the university in the building and none of the neighbors. Is that cultivating humility? No, it's not. You can go into the nursing home and touch the old people who have nobody touching them at Christmas. You can sit under the preaching of the word because always when you sit under the true preaching of the word, it does cultivate humility in you. You can read scripture because reading scripture cultivates humility. You can get pregnant because being pregnant cultivates humility. You can get married because marriage is a wonderfully humbling process. There are lots of ways of cultivating humility, but you've got to have the wanna. And that's the real problem. The real problem is that none of us want to be humbled. Because it's so much nicer to be proud. Except then God's strong arm will bash us down. 
because the Bible tells us that God resists the proud. Now, let me remind you why I'm talking about pride and humility. It's because Mary, the mother of Jesus, is rejoicing and is prophesying about the fact that God's mighty arm brings down the proud. Do you ever find your heart rejoicing in the fact that God's mighty arm brings down the proud? Do you ever sit there and think, praise God, he brings down the proud? Do you ever think that? You think, oh, I shouldn't think that. It's, it's a guilty pleasure. But it's not. It's godliness, people. It's godliness. Because this is what Mary's doing. She says what? She says, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. What we want to do is skip to exalting the humble. Oh, it's so beautiful. Mary, a no account. Nothing, Nazareth, nothing, young, nothing, unwed mother. Isn't it beautiful? God lifts her up and gives her the glory of putting Jesus in her. She's pregnant with the Messiah. It's a beautiful picture. What Mary herself takes glory in is the fact that God brings down the proud. He has brought down, verse 52, rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Do you remember that the Bible tells us why God chose Israel? It's hard for us today to remember it because... Jews as a people have so much of the authority and power and riches of this world. We don't think of Jews as needing affirmative action in the Western world, do we? You know why God chose the Jews originally? The Bible tells us. God chose the Jews because they were a nothing people. They were insignificant. Nobody thought of them. Nobody knew they existed. They had no power, no authority, nothing to commend them. And God chose them, he says, because he wanted to make it absolutely clear that the reason they received glory was that he set his power on them and lifted them up. In other words, they as a people, as a race, were to be an example of God casting down the proud. The Egyptians, what did they have? They had the Red Sea closing in over them. We still have them in museums. What were the Israelites? They were the slaves. They were the ones that were being oppressed, having to make bricks without straw. They had absolutely nothing. And Moses couldn't even speak. And God said, I chose you so it would be clear that it was me. I'm the one that did it. You didn't. Mary, it's clear. She's not the one that did it. God did it. What about today? Why are you a believer? Why are you sitting here? Is it because you had such an earnest and zealous and hard-working ethic spiritually that you just worked hard to be good and finally God brought you into a church where uh, other people are good, and we all sit here on Sunday morning and say, aren't we a, a wonderful group? What about our cars? What are our cars like? Is this the kind of church you want to belong to because of our cars? You say, well, cars are insignificant. I say, okay, what about our houses? Is this the kind of church you want to belong to because of our houses? What about our children? Newspapers filled with our children? (sighs) 
He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. If we look around us and we look at the people who are rich and proud and well-fed and only have thoughts of themselves, we'll never be evangelistic and we'll never speak to them about Jesus. Because they have no need of Jesus. And if we speak to them about Jesus, they'll laugh at us. But if, on the other hand, we'll begin to see the people who are poor and insignificant, lonely because all their relatives are a continent or a hemisphere away, international students, they don't speak the language, they are not American citizens, in other words, if we trust that God still is in the business of working in people who are humble and poor and hungry, then we'll find that they have hearts that are open to Jesus Christ. And God will use our work. And it better start in this neighborhood. Let's pray.